Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Home Abstract and Title Company was founded in 1867 and is the oldest company still operating in McLennan County. Home Abstract is comprised of a team of honest, friendly, hardworking professionals dedicated to providing both commercial and residential real estate clients with the highest level of communication and service. Their team is committed to working hard and building and maintaining strong relationships because transactions are so much more than just deals. They are clients deserving of the courtesy, care and respect that Home Abstract and Title Company is known for. Visit Home Abstract and Title Company at homeabstract.com. Cross the Brazos and Waco. Ride hard, that'll make it by dawn. Oh, cross the Brazos and Waco. I'm safe when I reach Santa. Welcome back to the Waco History Podcast. This is episode two in the Crossroads series that uh, is a uh, joint project between me and Rick Tullis. Welcome back, Rick. Hey, so glad to be back. Thank you for having me, and I'm so excited you can count to two. Well, <laughs> I wrote it down. Uh, so we're excited to be working through this series we talked about last time, and, and we're going to kind of move this chronologically in a sense, but we'll break down uh, thematically as well. And so we thought we would back up uh, from last episode's uh, conversation. If you haven't heard episode one of Crossroads, go back and take a listen to that now. Uh, but if you have, stay tuned as we'll press into a historical overview. Right, Rick? We're gonna, That's right. That's right. We're going to we're gonna go all the way back to the beginning. We're going to start with Adam and Eve, and then we're going to work our way Okay, fast forward just a little bit. Let's get uh, not quite that far back. But I, I think we can promise you by the end of the episode today, we'll get you through the 19th century. So we'll get you through uh, the 1800s before we end today's episode. Uh, but Rick's been doing uh, research. Um, he's been very focused uh, on uh, doing research on early Waco. So he's going to start us out with uh, how we should think about Waco's crossroads even early in its history. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, Stephen. I thought it'd be interesting to to look at the earliest contact and the earliest times that uh, that Waco was a crossroads for someone. Um, obviously, and you've done some great episodes on the the Native Americans that were here, and so there's some known there about about their lives. Um, uh, you know they don't have the same kind of written history, so we don't don't have all the same context. But but it does cross paths here. So in uh, one one thing I came across was in 1772, uh, the there was a Spanish explorer who happened to be the governor of Louisiana at the time. I'm going to butcher his name, uh, Athanas de Mazera. It's like I was transported. To yeah. Spain. <laughs> yeah, was you there? Yeah, yeah, Did yeah. you feel it? Yeah. Did, could you feel it? Um, <laughs> And uh, he was on a trek going up the Brazos, and in his in his writings or in his his notes, he notes two significant villages on the Brazos River, which uh, corresponds to where we are today. So that's probably one of the the earliest historical uh, references to what we now know as Waco. All right, really interesting. Uh, does he say anything else about it? 
uh, in this early reference? No. <laughs> so, so that's it. Uh, two two little villages uh, on the Brazos. Yeah. Is what well, he means. and, and yeah. I don't know if this is true or not, but you know, we we a lot of the names around here are Spanish. You know, Bosque. Uh, for one, that river. So I don't know if that was the the journey, the expedition, where the names were given to the, I mean, Brazos mm-hmm. is the, the full name of the Brazos is a very Spanish name as well. Um, so I don't know if, it, uh, if they were the ones, uh, if they went up and how far they went, I'm, I'm not sure. Okay. And so, yeah, we're talking 1772. This is the kind of the northeast perimeter of New Spain. Yeah. Is, is kind of this landscape we're talking about. Really interesting. Yeah. 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 All right. So, uh, seven, so we have a, a, a bit of information on 1772. Then when does the record help us again? Well, so in, in, um, in looking at it, about 50 years later, so Stephen F. Austin, and we, uh, we know how important he was to the, the Western settle, uh, settling of uh, Texas. But 1824, he had his colony going. And I guess they were running into trouble with the with the Wacos, and he sent a, a delegation up to um, the Waco villages to meet with them to negotiate some kind of peace treaty because they weren't getting along. I think there were some raids going on there, and uh, um, you know, some would say it wasn't just a delegation, but uh, as often hi- times happens in uh, these strategic meetings, they were doing a little uh, reconnaissance too. Mm-hmm. So they, they captured some information about the area. And in that, they talked about, you know, there's really two villages. They're real close together. Um, and you, uh, if you added up the, the houses in both of them, it was a little less than 50 houses, uh, about 100 men, right? They would want to know how many mm-hmm. fighting age males they had to deal with. And a couple hundred acres of corn were being being farmed at the time. So, um, uh a significant establishment for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. And, uh, so, and this is at the point where the colony, uh, that is a contingent that could have been threatening to the Texas colony. Cause yeah. not, not a very substantial Anglo presence in Texas. At that right, point. right. 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 Yeah. Pretty thin at mm-hmm. that point. Um, although it's interesting when you look at those maps, you know, they show these, these uh these, these counties or these settlements, I guess they were settlements at the time, you know, that they, they were drawn out on paper that went all the way almost to the Red River. You know, yeah. it's like they'd never been that far, but uh, they certainly wanted to take a claim over those lands, even though they had never seen them before. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would suspect that theme of, of uh, kind of defense and security would be one that might bring uh, the new colony back into the area. So does that turn out to be the case? Yeah, um, well, and, and, and I'm not sure if this is where you're going with it, but think of uh, what we know about Fort Fisher uh-huh. um, and, and when it was established in 1837. They, uh, the uh, uh, group of Texas Rangers were sent up here. So obviously between 1824 and 1837, a lot's happened, right? Mm-hmm. That's, you know, Texas has gotten its independence, and now they're trying to, to organize themselves and protect themselves. I mean, it's kind of a two front war. They've got the, the, the Mexicans on one side and they've got, uh, they've got hostile Indians all around. And so, uh, th- they made the strategic strategic decision to send a, a group of Rangers up river to establish an outpost, um, in, uh, uh, at what we now know as Fort Fisher. And in that, uh, group of Texas Rangers, a guy named George Erath, 
who ends up being important to Waco's future. We'll see in a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's funny we we think of in Waco now. There is a Fort Fisher we go mm-hmm. by all the time. I don't I don't think that's historically the accurate place where the actual fort was. They, yeah, no. they describe a, a place that seems a little different, but um, sounds like it's close. Uh, but they were only here three weeks, so it's like it wasn't like Fort Ticonderoga or something. I mean, it was uh, it was a short lived fort, and um, and then they pulled back. They the the uh, state officials wanted them to pull back because they thought they were too far beyond the uh, frontier to do any good. So um, Marlin Falls, we've talked about that before, and mm-hmm. as a crossroads because it had a, a great low water crossing. There were some uh, a few settlers in uh, in that area, so they pulled back to that area. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah, I've, I've even seen something recently where they've talked about maybe relocating Fort Fisher and, and folks being up in arms about the possibility of doing that. And it is the traditional home of, of you know, where Fort Fisher was, but probably not the actual home place right. where Fort Fisher right, was. Right, right, right. Yeah. It, you know, when it, in, the, in the ERAF talks about it being close to a big spring and all that, which probably describes something a little closer, further upriver, maybe where the... Uh, suspension bridge area is mm-hmm. uh, where you can still see all those springs going today. Yeah. Really it's amazing. Cool. I, yeah. yeah. You can walk down below, although it might be blocked off right now and you can still see those springs flowing. It's pretty wild. Yeah. So, um, so one thing I was going to, uh, in his own words, share a little bit with, uh, uh, with what Erath had to say, <clears throat> just to, to give you a feel from, from the, the source at the time, what it was like to, to do what they did. So he says, uh, this is from Erath's writing, in the fall of 1836, a battalion of rangers was organized and one company under the command of Captain Barron uh, was stationed at the falls of the Brazos. Of this company, the writer was a subaltern officer. We were ordered early in the year 1837 to establish a fort at Waco Village. We were there, th- we, we were three weeks coming up. So think of that. To get from Marlin to Waco took them three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> there might have been a few things in the way. They should so, have taken the highway. Yeah. <laughs> well, there, there's always that cop and resole, so they wanted to make sure they didn't. Um, so uh, we were three weeks coming up, having found it necessary to cut a road and build a bridge over Cow Bayou. We expected to occupy the fort permanently. Waco was in the possession of Buffalo, and only a short time before had been vacated by the Waco Indians. Corn stalks were found in the fields that had been cultivated, and peach trees were growing where the city now stands. We built some shanties for barracks near the big spring on the river, but only remained there three weeks when an order came from the Secretary of War for us to return to the falls as we were too far to do any good. Uh, We went back, calling the place we had left Fort Fisher. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting. As we talk about crossroads and travel, it wasn't easy to travel back then, right? I don't know if they were all on horseback or if they actually had uh, wagons. I'm sure they were taking supplies and stuff. But mm-hmm. yeah, the, the 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 terrain and having to clear out roads isn't like we think of roads now. Our context is much different. We we drive down I-35 and we see bulldozers and uh, uh, track hose doing all that work. Well, you know, for these guys, it was a it was a hatchet and you know manpower maybe use their horse to pull some stuff out of the way but yeah slow and difficult work in a place where you know think of where today we're on a day where it's raining quite a bit i mean just think what the conditions yeah. would have been like yeah, yeah. on a day like today and, and when it was time for uh you know 
lunch or dinner break, it wasn't like they just, you know, jumped over to Jack in the box and got something. They had to go find food, kill it, process it. Um, you know, a lot more of their day was spent in subsistence living than we spend today. So I hope you're not eating Jack in the box, Rick, a uh, man at your age, uh, needs to think about nutrition. <laughs> sourdough uh, more than that. The sourdough bun. Really anyway, <laughs> Uh, so this is the Republic period. So this is Republic of Texas yeah. period. What else is kind of going on in that era? Um, well, so soon after. Uh, well, one note to make, I think, that we learned from that source is uh, this vibrant village or two villages that we heard described earlier, yeah. something had changed. Uh, yeah, they in, weren't there in, anymore. In the intervening years, <laughs> yeah. yeah. They weren't there, and, and there's – uh, probably certainly some thoughts on on why they left. Um, you know, there's there's different theories out there. You know, the uh, disease was one of them that mm-hmm. uh, that that had taken a toll on the the Native American population. Um, and there wasn't just the fighting that was going on with the settlers. There was a lot of fighting between different tribes, and and um, you know, who knows how that might have had an effect one way or the other. Yeah, but, but there's a lot of pressure on uh, indigenous uh, peoples yes. at the time. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and, you know, it, it must have been just an incredibly hard way of life mm-hmm. as well. I mean, we're talking about the settlers who had a few more, um, you know, modern amenities uh, for the time. But, uh, yeah, it, it was a hard life for mm-hmm. everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so my next kind of crossroads contact in that uh, time period was uh, – uh, something called the Santa Fe Expedition. Mm-hmm. Have you have you ever heard of that? Yeah, uh, I know. I know it came through the area, but I don't know a lot of details about it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, um, so Lamar, um, I think he was the president at the time. Mm-hmm. Decided, hey, we want to. Uh, he, he stated explicitly, we're, we we want to set up a trading relationship with um, the, the the Mexicans in Santa Fe. Now there, I think there was also this desire that hey, hopefully maybe they'll want to come over to our side, mm-hmm. but we're going to go as a mercantile group and and really try to set up a, a trading um, um, route. Route, yes. Yeah. There had been, uh, and to his point, there had been some similar ones set up. I think St. Louis to Santa Fe was a mm-hmm. trading route at the time that that was successful, and so to do that, they put together a couple hundred uh, guys. Uh, some with a military background, a lot of them were merchants and a lot of them were just, you know, people new to Texas who wanted to see the world and explore what was going on. And, uh, one of those guys is a guy named George Wilkins Kendall. He actually wrote an account of, of the whole trip, which turns out to be great for us. Cause we're going to see a little bit of that in a second. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so, so the expedition leaves uh, out of Austin and comes up through this area and, at the time, you got to you got to keep in mind, no one had ever gone from Austin to Santa Fe. There wasn't a road, there yeah. wasn't a path, there wasn't even a, a map that that actually spelled out exactly where to go. Uh, I think they had a couple of guides who kind of thought maybe they knew where to go, and um, um, so and as that, a result, they're taking the long way there. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, yeah. we'll see. They yeah. kind of take the never way there, but they. <laughs> uh, at, at the beginning of the trip, uh, you know, they've, they've got a lot of wagons loaded with goods. They've got, you know, a couple hundred people. Um, they're bringing their own cattle for food. They've got a bunch of cattle with them. And uh, so this group's making its way 
really up that I-35 corridor that we we talked about the in the last show that was really a natural pathway. But they knew at some point they had to start going west. Mm-hmm. And where that broke uh, seems to be, um, you know, the, uh, when, when you when you read the, the book, they did camp somewhere around Little River. There was an old fort there, mm-hmm. uh, Frontier Fort. Uh, they'd stayed there. And then they cut across the, the plains. The, the, it would have been a, you know, not like we see now where there's trees and stuff. It would have been pretty barren, open ground, um, pretty easy travel. And uh, the accounts are really interesting there. They come, they, they come across lots of buffalo, like the guys describing buffalo as far as the eye could see, mm-hmm. uh, which is really interesting. In our time, yeah. we, don't, we don't get that. And, um, and we know, and, and it's described, they cross at a place uh, on the North Bosque River called Eichelberg Crossing which is there today. I mean, yeah. you can actually, in modern times, which is often the case, you know, a trail turns into a road, turns into a highway, whatever. I mean, it's not a highway, but there is a significant road that's through Eichelberg Crossing now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought uh, it'd be interesting to hear a quick description of, of what um, um, of what Wilkins had to say here. So, <clears throat> and, and again, talking about the, the difficulty of travel. And he says, uh, we had already, and with no incon- inconsiderable difficulty, crossed one branch of the Bosque, which I would say that's the South Bosque, if you look at how the, how the rivers are lined up. <clears throat> and on the even, evening of the 5th, arrived another fork of the same stream, which would be the Middle Bosque at mm-hmm. that point, where we encamped for the night. It abounds with excellent trout. I hear a little bit of a pause there. We don't have trout. Yeah. <laughs> um, but as far as he knew, they were trout. Yeah. Sure they were bass. And soft-shell turtle. Uh, this day, for the first time, we saw the antelope, or mountain goat, an animal somewhat resembling both the deer and the goat, but with flesh preferable to that of either. It runs with great speed and has a stride like a horse. All right, what's that? That's a, that's pronghorn a, yeah, antelope pronghorn. is what he's describing, yeah, 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 yeah. which... You know, you're not going to see those around here any longer yeah. until you get up um, in the uh, High Plains area. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so then he goes on. On <clears throat> the early part of the 6th of July, we spent cutting a road through a thick belt of wood, which skirts el- either side of the main branch of the Bosque. So I think they're getting close to this Eichelberg crossing area now. And in, the, and in partially digging away the high steep banks of the stream, the labor of crossing the river was incredible. In descending the abrupt banks, abrupt banks, which led to the channel, it was necessary not only to lock the wheels, but to hold back the wagons with ropes to prevent them from pitching down headfirst, as it were. The greatest difficulty, however, was in ascending the other side. The ascent was nearly perpendicular and some 40 feet high, with no better footing than deep sand. Some 20 yoke of oxen would, in the first place, be hitched to the wagon, then ropes would be attached wherever there was a place to make them fast, manned with about 50 or 60 of the fatigued party. Finally, all the drivers would be called uh, in requisition, and when all was ready uh, for a start, such a jumping, whipping, cranking, yelling, pulling, cursing, and swearing would arise <laughs> as it set all description at defiance. So just imagine doing that day after day. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, you know, I think of that in Waco history terms. That, that just... Let you know how de- how ideal a crossing the suspension bridge area was, as as opposed to 
a crossing like that, right. how difficult that crossing was. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, the rivers in Texas are certainly in this part of Texas, you know, they don't tend to be um, like the beautiful streams you see in a picture of a mountain meadow where you, you know, you have this gently sloping bank and you can walk mm-hmm. down the river. I mean, our rivers are ditches with 20, 30, 40 foot drops. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then the water channel, and then it's another 20, 30 foot rise on the other side. And, um, um, and so they, they would have to cut, uh, uh, these approaches, right. They would, mm-hmm. they would send out parties to, to cut down the banks so they could get the wagons in and out. Um, a, a little side note, uh, I've got a, a farm on the middle Bosky and not too far from me. There, there are a couple of these places where approaches have been cut. And I often have wondered were one of those, the original cuts that these guys made, in 1841. Yeah. I'll never know, but <laughs> it's fun to think about. Um, so what is the fruit of that expedition? Yeah. 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 yeah so it's a whole nother story, probably a whole nother podcast, but uh, <laughs> yeah, those guys end up getting lost. They never, um, uh, they, they, were, they were trying to get to the Red River and then follow it west. They mm-hmm. never find the Red River. <laughs> the guy who was guiding them ends up running off because he, he, he figures out that he doesn't know what he's doing. And um and so somewhere up in the Paladura Canyon area, they, they're stuck. They can't get up. They can't get out of the canyon and they're out of food. The guys are sick. They're getting, they're getting attacked, um, uh, frequently. And, you know, their horses are getting stolen. They, they've, they're out of cattle. They're starting to starve. There aren't any buffalo around that area. Um, so they, they end up sending out a, uh, a small group that was still well enough, um, in this, uh, I'm sorry, George Kendall. I think I call him Wilkins. I'm going to go. Uh, George Wilkins Kendall was part of the group that that's. Hey, we're just going to go into Santa Fe and get help, and we'll come back and get these guys. Well, the uh, uh, the Mexican authorities there, the governor, uh, uh, had gotten intel that these guys were coming. Right, some some uh, um, somebody had seen their big party coming across the the, the plains and stuff. So anyway, he captures them, and then finds out the other guys are there, goes and captures the rest of them. They never make it to Santa Fe. He, uh, he executes a few of them, um, threatens to execute more of them. But anyway, in, in essence, then they all get marched down to Mexico City um, on foot. So they've almost died going to Santa Fe. Now they got to walk all the way to Mexico City on foot uh, under horrible conditions and uh, under threat of death. And then gets down there, gets a little fuzzy. Some of them escape. Some of them... Um, um, get let go, and then a lot of them make their way back to Texas. And in fact, one of them is a guy we're going to talk about next. I, I know who was an employee at the time of the Tory brothers, but uh, you you tell us about him. Well, yeah. uh, George Bernard, yeah, Barnard. Yeah, I, I say that right. George Barnard um, was on that expedition, and mm-hmm. though he he makes he he makes the round trip back up to Waco. You want to? Uh, what do you know about the Tory? Yeah, so he, so the the Tory Brothers Trading Company uh, started in Houston uh, in 1838, and Barnard is working for them in Houston, and they had they franchise. So there's New Braunfels, San Antonio. They have several of these trading posts that are established, mm-hmm. but then uh, Barnard comes into local lore by leading uh, the Tory Brothers post that's established uh, near Waco. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, one thing that uh, I thought was interesting, um, putting that trading post in was actually a um, requirement of a treaty with the Indians. 
the the Texas Indians. Um, they they negotiated, being the uh, savvy negotiators they are, negotiated. Hey, we want a trading post out here closer to us, and uh, mm-hmm. and that's why that uh, that got put um, actually just downriver from where we would call Waco now. So somewhere between. Uh, Cow Bayou and Tawankana Creek. Mm-hmm. About eight miles uh, below Waco Indian Village. So yeah. About eight miles from Waco. Yeah. And so it's George Barnard, who's a 26-year-old native of Connecticut, and his brother uh, Charles are the ones that kind of moved there in 1844, becoming some of the first white settlers in the region. But yeah. So the Indian groups would have wanted them there just for trade, I mean, uh, because – the indigenous groups are very involved by that point in the trade in both deer hides, buffalo hides. And so you, you can think about for economics, for for them, you know, it's handy to have an outlet right, uh, where right. they can do trade. Right, right. And, <clears throat> you know, they, they were um, mining basically the local resource in order to uh, convert that to, to uh, something of value they could go get something for you know, I was, I was looking at some of the, the figures of what they were trading, and I, I want to say it was 75,000 hides a year. Yeah, 75,000 in deer hides alone. That's uh, that's in a period. So between 44 and 53, 1844 and 1853, when Waco gets established, you know, he's going to want to move in town. Right. But through that period, they handle uh, 75,000 deer hides. They're handling buffalo hides as well. Uh, black bears were st- were still yeah. prevalent in the area, yeah. so they're handling a lot of different hides. Yeah, and there's there's still beaver in the area in considerable numbers at yeah. that point too. Yeah, um, yeah, I think it's interesting that when we when we look at the demise, I, I've always associated uh, the demise of a lot of that wildlife, just like we were talking about the pronghorn antelope a minute ago, was directly related to when the settlers got here, and and mm-hmm. agriculture started and all that stuff. Um, but it is interesting to think, and I, I never really considered that, you know, the, the, uh, the indigenous population was actually motivated to reduce those animal populations because that was their, their, their trade, um, currency. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I mean, cause they're shipping these out, right? So, I mean, local Indian groups are now connected in the global yeah. trade networks and, and some of the things that. Uh, that Barnard had in stock would be like gunpowder, lead, bullet molds, hatchets, colored beads, blankets, cloth, dress combs, tobacco was in really high demand. Yeah. Barnard's would be a place that you could go. You could also buy whiskey uh, yeah. there if you wanted to. Yeah. And so it was a it was an active concern. Well, <clears throat> kind of bring it back to modern times. Uh, most people know where Trading House Lake is. Mm-hmm. It gets its name because it was close to this trading house that we're describing. That's that, right. That's the general area. Yeah, 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 good. That gives us a good kind of reference point for where it was. One of the interesting things, uh, we have good records. So the Texas Collection has good records of kind of some of the activity uh, at the trading post. And one of the interesting things I found is some of the stuff that Barnard ordered for himself, and which include like silk underwear and things like that. I mean, <laughs> you get the sense that he yeah. was kind of a fancier fella yeah. uh, by some of the stuff that he ordered uh, for his personal use. Yeah, well, that's, um, that is very useful out on the frontier. <laughs> so that, that uh, trading post actually um, 
I want to just clarify that Trading Post stands there until 1929. So it's sold by Barnard to actually some Jewish settlers, but he moves his uh, kind of general store, sets up a, an office in Waco uh, in, in the early 1850s. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I think by all accounts was was one of the uh, wealthiest uh, um, um, occupants in Waco or citizens and did a lot for the early uh, early days of Waco. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, that gets us up to, we already talked about it a little bit, and I think Erath maybe comes back into the picture here. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so it was 1842, right, when that when it was the, the trading house was established. So then there's kind of this period of um, uh, of surveyors going out, of settlers, you know, looking for claims to make. Um, but there was a lot of tensions at, the, at this point with uh, with the indigenous folks. So um, um, there, there wasn't a there wasn't a huge push into the area. So there's not a lot written about the next you know few years, and and uh, at least that I could find now. Now in uh, in this book, one of the books that we keep referencing, I don't think we mentioned this earlier, mm-hmm. is a uh, handbook of Waco and McLennan County. And I've got a version from 1876 that I'm looking at that's got these personal accounts from uh, George E. Rath and some of the other characters from the the, the early history. So that's that's what we're pulling from. Um, uh, and so he does, he describes, you know, going on on many missions. And he's got a guy with him who often helps him out, a guy named Neil McLennan. And... Uh, you know, he, he ends up being, um, you know, Barnard was probably the first permanent um, uh, resident of mm-hmm. what we would call now McLennan County. McLennan was the, kind of the first settler. He, he, when they were out surveying land, saw this beautiful place in what they called the South Bosque uh, Valley, which right now is under Lake Waco. So if you were, um, you, you ever, you ever been to the, uh, the park in Woodway that overlooks the lake? Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Be- beautiful spot. Well, if the water wasn't there and you were looking kind of back to the to the northwest towards uh, Hog Creek, that's where Neil McLennan uh, settled. And so that would be that park would be one rim of the valley or one kind of yeah, edge of the yeah, valley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're sitting there on the edge of the water, but really you took mm-hmm. the water away. There's probably another you know thirty forty foot drop down in there to what would have been the the actual water course that ran through there. Um, it would have been beautiful. It would have been beautiful. Yeah. In fact, uh, um, uh, you know, as he is, uh, when they were out surveying and uh, McLennan saw this area as they were surveying their way up the, the uh, south and middle Bosque, he fell in love with the area. And, you know, it was probably took about eight or nine or 10 years later when he came back and actually built a house in, and uh, established his uh, homestead there. Mm-hmm. Could we say cabin would be more accurate than maybe than a house? Maybe yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe not quite yeah. up to your standards yeah. as a house, but um, um, and and uh, you might see this on the on the map too. I, I like how uh, current what we know currently ties back to history. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> There's a road called McLennan Crossing uh, when you get on the other side of of the river off of Spiegelville Road, and that was literally. That was Neil McLennan's crossing. That mm-hmm. wasn't McLennan County crossing. That was Neil McLennan's crossing that went by his house <laughs> and crossed the South Bosque River and came up basically where uh, Estates Drive, that kind of area right mm-hmm. there, um, and, and carried on towards Waco. Um, 
and that was the main road that connected Gatesville and several other places to Waco that went, went across that crossing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Um, okay. So those guys, uh, Erath, McLennan, uh, some other guys are out doing, uh, not only surveying, they're doing a lot of Texas rangering in there as well. When, when, uh, things get hostile, um, well, when it's about uh, 1848-49 was when Erath got the uh, got the job to work for Cordova, mm-hmm. De Cordova, mm-hmm. um, to uh, to lay out the the uh, town that became known as Waco. So mm-hmm. I was going to read a little bit of that. So yeah, so De, De Cordova working as land agent, uh, Erath working as surveyor, yep. kind of organize and lay out. Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> So early in 1848, I received orders from J.D. Cordova from J.S. Snyder of Galveston, who was the owner of the two-league chambers grant, to divide the same into lots for sale at $1 per acre. It's a good deal. (laughs) I bet the property taxes were low on that. I made the surveys in May, but owing to a cloud on the title, advised that the grant be uh, relocated with certificates to perfect title, there is a whole story there on a legal battle that raged for years over some of this land. Um, I fancied that Waco would make an important town. I love this part, by the way. I fancy that Waco would make an important town uh, for my earliest visits to the place on account of its central location to the state, uh, it being above the swamps and lowlands below and the many forks of water courses and broken lands above. You know, I'm a big I'm a big fan of Chamber of the Commerce of Chamber of Commerce here, and you know that's a lot of what we say now. Now we don't talk about the swamps and lowlands anymore, but you know the central location of Waco is still one of our major selling points for this community. Mm-hmm. I love it. Um, you know, and he, and this ties back to our <clears throat> that great air conditioning. Um, podcast we did yeah if if, uh drop your device now uh and uh, tune back to listen to uh the history of actually i think mike hamilton our producer originally dubbed it the history of ac and waco and some reason that wasn't sexy enough so now it's how waco got cool so check that out with rick tullis and i i'm glad there's no sarcasm sarcasm in your voice there so um but swamps were a problem because people realized they were getting sick around swamps, right? Uh-huh. Yellow fever, you know, what we call malaria now. And uh, Waco was was above that line uh, in the state of Texas where people would get yellow fever. Mm-hmm. So that made it a very desirable place. In fact, there's, there's some documentation in the same handbook that that's one of the reasons they moved Baylor from um, – uh, its original location and independence and independence because it's below the line and, and yeah. Waco's above. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. It's not good for business when your students keep dying. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so I love that part. Uh, he goes on to say, <clears throat> um, uh, I was instructed to lay off the town and sell lots. A plan was furnished me with permission to change it, uh, to suit the locality. The place was to be called Lamartine from which I dissented as no deeds were to be made immediately and no records made. The name was not settled till the 5th of May when it was agreed by all to call it Waco village. Yeah. So, so we were that close to be doing the Lamartine history podcast. I I, I know. Yeah. And so there's some debate over where that name came from. 
Uh, some say it was Lamar that you mentioned uh, earlier, but there's also a French hero, uh, Lamartine, oh. that supposedly it was De Cordova's wife that pushed the name Lamartine to honor this French hero. But yes, we were that close to being Lamartine. They would have totally changed this podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was uh, the original layout of the town. Uh, lots were going pretty cheap. You know, it talked about selling them for a dollar, but they, he, he goes on to talk about when they actually had their, their auction to sell lots. Uh, he says, I ran, out of, I ran out block number one in the front of the block opposite. Uh, these were, there, were many, uh, there were as many lots as were wanting. Captain Ross mm-hmm. took two or three. George Barnard, the corner lot. Puckett, one or two. The names of the other parties who invested I have forgotten. $5 each was the highest price agreed upon for the lots. I then ran off Main Street as far as Captain Ross's farming lots, which by contract he was to have for $1.25 per acre. The foundations of Waco were laid. Interesting. Yeah, so uh, Shapley Ross, who we we haven't mentioned yet, uh, of course, has is very connected to this story mm-hmm. as well. He's big is going to be a prominent citizen for the first 30 or so years of Waco. Yeah. 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 And, uh, in fact, he, he, uh, back to the crossroads theme, mm-hmm. I mean, he was a big part of that because, uh, he established, uh, the commercial venture of, 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 uh, having a ferry. And so it was a pre bridge, no bridge. And, uh, he ran the, a, uh, a ferry across the river. Yeah, it was part of his agreement for coming here that he'd have exclusive rights uh, mm-hmm. to kind of run that ferry. So, mm-hmm. but he also was a, uh, um, as they would call him in the day, kind of an Indian fighter. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, having uh, his presence in the town again, they're thinking about how to market their new town uh, would be reassuring as well. Right. Right. So Waco's off to a start, the, I guess not the city, but the village of Waco uh, in the early yeah. period, not incorporated until 1856. Uh, but I know they work very hard early on to ensure Waco is the uh, county seat. Uh, that's mm-hmm. re- That was important to De Cordova and Erath for Waco's prosperity going forward. They donate uh, some land to ensure that that's the case. Right, right. Uh-huh. it had, actually had to be carved out of Milam County, I believe. Mm-hmm. And at that at that time, I think Milam County was this huge expanse of land that obviously has been broken up into many counties at this point. So, mm-hmm. um, as we kind of move forward, we, we've had podcasts talk about the Civil War in Waco. We obviously know the some of the antebellum uh, way of life in Waco in the 1850s. Um, how should we? pick up on that theme of kind of crossroads going forward. What do you think would be next to kind of think about? Well, um, so the handbook I have here, the 1876 Mm -hmm. handbook. So that was roughly 25 years after the founding, Mm -hmm. um, which, you know, in the stretch of time doesn't seem too long ago uh, or or too long of a time to pass, but um, it was rapid expansion, right? They were Mm -hmm. a frontier town, a lot of things happening. So they go from a guy laying out lots um, to you know in in uh, in this time frame in 1876 they've got the suspension bridge mm-hmm. across the river, which in and of itself was a major technological breakthrough. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, they got their first railroad. Uh, I think it was called the Tap Railroad. It actually was a mm-hmm. tap off of another railroad that ran from Dallas to Houston. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a tap, I think, to Bremont, uh, kind of coming into Waco that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, you definitely, you know, these these trails were developing more into roads and getting more uh, more more movement of people and goods. Um, <clears throat> we're, we're starting to get in the heart of the uh, cattle uh, movement, the the Chisholm Trail, being a spot on the Chisholm Trail, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of that uh, commerce coming through. Cotton is figuring big into the economy, and it's not just the agricultural part of cotton, but you also got to process that cotton. So there's all the industries associated with that. Um, people uh, t- talks about not just cotton mills, but also woolen mills. I think sheep mm-hmm. was a much bigger commodity. Um, you know, mo- most of the cattle, they were free-ranging cattle. They would gather them up, and they were taking them to market. They, they didn't really have the advanced breeds of cattle that we have now. That really started happening later on. They were still, I mean, if you can go find cows for free, you're going to keep doing that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, uh, yeah, and so that, and more of the livestock that was being kept was sheep and goats and other things that were, were not feral. Yeah, that, that cows for free thing, uh, you know, begins to play out by the time you get to late 1870s, early 1880s. But uh, it was a sweet age while it lasted. Yeah. Um, so in a in another uh, interesting excerpt from the from the manual or from the the handbook. So you you had a great episode on hotels, and mm-hmm. the McClellan Hotel was kind of the you know the, the top of the. Uh, creme de la creme of, of hotels for Waco at the time and right there on Austin Avenue and wherever, where all the action was happening. Um, so there's a, there's a little description in here. I won't read it all, but there's a few parts that might give us a, a, uh, a taste of what downtown Waco was like at the time. Mm-hmm. So again, just 25 years after its founding. Okay. So from the cupola of the McClellan hotel, a charming view of the city and its surroundings may be enjoyed. Keep in mind, he's trying to sell the place too. So, <laughs> uh, not the hotel, but Waco to whoever's going to get this handbook. From that elevated standpoint, the beholder looks immediately down into the Austin Street and into the public square near uh, nearby, and beholds during the months known as the cotton season a scene of bustling activity, as it renders it difficult to realize that only a few years ago the ground not now occupied by mammoth houses and traversed by these crowds crowded thoroughfares of business was trodden only by the buffalo's hoof and the moccasined foot of the Indian. So dramatic. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's it's no different than, you know, we, uh, we go to parts of our city now where someone just built a new subdivision and go, <laughs> this was a cornfield uh-huh. you know, five years ago, right? Uh-huh. Um. So then he he looks down. He kind of gives a description of looking down the streets, and uh, uh, so looking down the valley, uh, he sees long streets lined in each side for a few squares by stores in which dealers, large and small, are exchanging their wares for current funds, or for the products of the fertile acres of this and other counties, or with shops in which busy artisans are are working out their own private fortunes and adding to the country's wealth. I thought it's interesting. He talked about current funds. Mm-hmm. Uh, money as we know it was not as available. So yeah. there was a, it was a much more of a bar- bartering type economy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 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 currency and credit weren't, weren't nearly as available yeah. as they are now. Yeah. 
Um, you know, they, uh, when, when they're talking about, uh, how far the cities come, uh, also it's, it's interesting. They talk about, uh, how many brick buildings there are. Like they give a literal count in here of, we had this many buildings made out of brick. Yeah. Brick buildings didn't burn down as easy as wood buildings. And it was a sign of, of, uh, more wealth and more permanence. Mm-hmm. Um, thought that was interesting. So, uh, Eastward, so remember he's on top of this cupola and he's now he's looking eastward down Austin Avenue. Eastward is seen the Noble Suspension Bridge. It was Noble. It's pretty good. Noble <laughs> Suspension Bridge, across which uh, from morn to eve there flows a constant stream of business and travel. Beyond this, beyond this are the very busy streets of East Waco, the handsome railroad depots, and still further on the large buildings of the Waco cotton mills, erected just at the point where the alluvial valley of the river gives place to the post oak belt that extended five miles beyond. So, so there were still lots of forest lands out mm-hmm. that way too. Um, yeah. Um, you know, it goes on, I guess, you know, describing some of the other businesses. There's plane, planing mills because lumber was important. Yeah. You know, you, you think about, um, you know, why the indigenous people moved, uh, had a village there, uh, and it actually is a lot of the same reasons these settlers would put a village there, right? Mm-hmm. A source of water, you know, a place to get close to the water, but not getting not getting flooded out all the time. Mm-hmm. So you know, there had to be a little bit of elevation, uh, fertile lands close by to 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 farm and produce food, uh, but you also needed wood because there was no. Uh, you know, there weren't, that was the main source for, uh, really any kind of, uh, heat or cooking or whatever. Um, so you had to be, um, uh, you know, in an area where, where, where you had wood or have access, you know, later on, I think a lot of that starts getting supplied by the railroad from East yeah. Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but, I've, I've seen those old maps. And so you have lumber companies, most of them were in what maps call East Waco comma Texas. I mean, they're, they're labeling it kind of as a separate community, but I, I know that the Cameron lumber company was just there across the river. So, yeah. 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 Um, so, you know, by this point, this point that you're talking about is when Waco is really coming into its own as the kind of capital of the inland cotton market in Texas. I right. Mean, it is the point of exchange. You know, we'll, we need to make the point that, you know, the, the old system uh, of sl- slave labor had given way to the new system of tenancy and sharecropping, which while it uh, granted people rights, I'm, I'm putting this in air quotes, generally put them in, you know, recurring debt and right. a, a situation where they weren't tied legally uh, to ownership, but debt, you know, Debt-wise, they were often tied to the land, right? Uh, but but it is a time where it's really the heyday for cotton uh, as as far as its place in the local right. economy. Yeah. yeah, and I think it'd be interesting. We we've talked about uh, we're having another uh, crossroads episode just on commerce and really mm-hmm. digging into that a little bit more, looking at you know how much was being produced then and how it grew exponentially, and and really how Waco was the western most place that you could actually grow cotton mm-hmm. uh, at the time it, it it moved as cotton got better but um and and farming techniques got better but yeah this was 
this was, that ends up being a major part of the economy. Um, you know, one of the other excerpts here were kind of related to this and, uh, and also some of the, the human, I think, innovation that had to occur once they lost, uh, um, the ability to have that free labor, right. That think, uh, we've seen that today, um, constraints will, uh, create innovation, create opportunities for innovation, right. And mechanization and, you know, Waco right now, we've, we've got a, a large shortage. We, we, our economy is growing faster than we can, um, grow our workforce. Mm-hmm. So you're starting to see companies be more innovative, um, going into fast food places now, and there's no one to take an order. You go to a machine mm-hmm. and, and place your order. You know, those are labor saving devices because companies can't find labor. But anyway, yeah. uh, uh, the handbook says, uh, here and there, as the eye surveys the town in all directions, again, this is the guy up in the cupola, are seen of the vapory jets sent from various substantial buildings in which steam is employed in important manufacturing tasks. Um, so you love, uh, as an engineer, I love that idea, right? The steam age is, is in full swing. Uh, those those uh, machines are getting employed in different ways. In fact, we talked about that in the air conditioning podcast. That's you know, the, the main driver for how they were able to produce ice uh, using these steam engines, but they were being used for multiple, multiple things. Um, and, in, and in the old bird's eye uh, pictures of Waco, the maps, if, if you ever could see those, and they show all these dirty smokestacks everywhere, that was just a beautiful sign of progress. That was progress, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, we see this in some larger cities around this time with these fights against smoke. And, uh, you know, smoke pollution. Yeah, but it's, again, it's seen as progress, right? This yeah. is a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've got smoky skies. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, well, the, you know, I, I, I said we're going to get to 1900, but I think that's a pretty good cutoff because I think we've established a good kind of foundation for this early phase of kind of crossroads. Um, I think the as cotton, if we've introduced it, it's really cemented with, uh, the Cotton Palace, which starts in 1894. And that's going to be a great thing to tease to talk about when we get into mm-hmm. Waco as an entertainment crossroads. There's also educational institutions that are that are popping up during this period right. None, right. that won't be mentioned here because those <laughs> we'll talk about in our, yep. our uh, education crossroads uh, episode. Anything else you think I ought to make sure we get in today as we lay this kind of early historic foundation? Um, no, I think that's a good place uh, to stop. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll start saying uh, we're, we're at some point going to talk about some of the political crossroads that mm-hmm. happened in Waco. Uh, we, there were uh, a lot of significant, uh, not only uh, people, but events that have happened here over the years. And, and as Waco grew in prominence through this time period, right, and it's, it's cotton dominance in the um, uh, yeah, there's some cool stuff there that we'll, we'll dig into later. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. All right. Well, thanks Rick. Hey, my pleasure. Uh, thanks to all of you for listening and, uh, just stay tuned for episode three coming out soon. Thanks for listening to the Waco History Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. You can find show notes and info on every episode at wacohistorypodcast.com and more info on Waco's past at wacohistory.org. Our theme music, used with permission, is Cross the Brazos at Waco, performed by the late Billy Walker. 
For more info on Billy's music, go to billywalker.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. This has been a Rogue Media Network production. Thank you.